Well, these Sunday nights and Sunday mornings also now, we are looking at the first letter, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. And we've started the second chapter this morning. And tonight we come to verse 8. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Now there are certain things of which you don't need to be told. Now remember, if tomorrow is your birthday, I don't have to remind you. Remember it's your birthday tomorrow. You're so excited about it, you can't get it out of your mind. Especially the party and the friends that are coming. and You can't sleep the night before because you know very well it's your birthday the next day. There's a bride need to be reminded that uh, next Saturday she's going to get married. There's a boy who is leaving home for the first time and going off to college. In a few days does he need to be reminded that he's going off to college, to university. We don't need to be reminded of important events in the future. But we can forget important events in the past. And that is why the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Don't forget to remember what happened to someone whom God had told, don't look back longingly at that foul and disgusting place called Sodom. It's not worthy of glances back, of worthy memories, but Lot's wife, uh, she was a compromiser and she wanted one more look at a place that she loved. You must always remember the, the sweetest things, the loveliest things. You remember the day when mum came home from hospital with a new baby brother. Wasn't that wonderful? And you all stood and looked at this tiny baby. Remember the good things. But we don't. And that's why the Lord Jesus told us we are not to forget the most important thing about his life and death. We are not to forget that at the end he became the Lamb of God. It was announced at the beginning, behold the Lamb of God, John said, he's going to take away the sin of the world. And that's what he did in his death. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. In our place, condemned, he stood. And so the Lord Jesus, he wants to help us to remember his death by instituting a special ordinance. Now there were two ordinances or sacraments that the Lord Jesus instituted. One we're going to see tonight. The ordinance of baptism. Go into all the world and baptize every disciple in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we do it tonight. Our fad, it's because Jesus told us to do it. And then there was another one which wasn't just um, a punctilia, a point ordinance, but it was a linear ordinance that we do it regularly. We do it every month in, in this congregation. Some people do it every week. And that is, we break bread and we drink a cup of wine. And the Lord Jesus uh, told us to do that. And this is the reason he told us to do it. Do it in remembrance of me. And so he stoops to uh, eye gate and taste gate and smell gate. And uh, we take the bread and we drink the cup. And that helps us to remember our great debt to him. Because of what he has done for us in giving himself for us. As the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary. Here in this verse that I've read to you. That we're looking at from Second Peter chapter 2. Here we are not told to remember his life and death. But we are told to remember his resurrection from the grave. So Paul talks to this young preacher, Timothy, and he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my good news, my gospel. 
There's no gospel, you see, in saying Jesus was particularly brave and he stuck to his guns until the end and he died and he's a moral example to us all of someone who is convinced of something and dies for his convictions. There have been many, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of men and women who have died for their convictions. What's unique about Jesus Christ? Paul says he was raised from the dead. I picked up uh, in one of these remainder shops, uh, bookshops, I picked up a book which caught my eye. It was called uh, 100 of the Most Famous Men. And uh, I looked up the index, uh, glanced down the names of the people that were the most famous, you would expect. Uh, Shakespeare and, and, and Julius Caesar and uh, Charles Dickens, Winston Churchill to be there. And Jesus, his name was there. So I turned to that page to see what they'd said about my saviour. Would they say that he was raised from the dead? He wasn't like the other 99 then. He was discontinuous. We all die. And we stay dead. The 99 greatest men in the history of the world died and stayed dead. They had no choice in the matter. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead on the third day. Is there a, a book called The Hundred Great Men in the World Who Were Dead and Were Raised from the Dead? Well, there's no such book. There was only one man who conquered death. And that is Jesus of Nazareth. So what did the, this book then, The Hundred Great Men, what did it say about Jesus? How did it deal with this embarrassing fact that he was not like the rest of them, that he rose from the dead? Well, this is what it said. After his death, his followers said he was raised from the dead. Well, that's absolutely true, isn't it? And this book was uh, correct in telling us that this actually happened. Peter, for example, um, 50 days after the resurrection, Peter was uh, in Jerusalem, uh, where Jesus had been killed. And this is what he said to the people. Many of them had shouted out, crucify him, crucify him, release unto us Barabbas, Peter said to them, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Acts 2, 23 and 24. Peter risked his life speaking publicly saying those words to everyone who was in Jerusalem, thousands of them. Was Peter telling a lie? Seven weeks after the public crucifixion of Jesus, was he fabricating a bold and extraordinary myth, formulating a conspiracy with 150 other Christians in Jerusalem, no one breaking ranks, no one finally saying, sorry, we foolishly thought there'd been a great miscarriage of justice in killing Jesus, and this uh, was our silly attempt to get even with, uh, with the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. Nobody at all said that. Not one person. In fact, they were prepared to be thrown into prison, and to be tortured and slowly killed. They died for something they knew was absolutely true. The greatest reality in their lives. What are the facts that we know about the resurrection? Four Gospels written about 40 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord. Very brief time, really. 
scarcely enough time for fairy tales to become facticity. Four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all emphasize quite different aspects of the 40 days after the cross when Jesus was in this world and, and walked and talked and ate and drank with his disciples. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, gives us the earliest consecutive record of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he wrote that about 20 years after Jesus rose. No time for sweet myths to become hard facts. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the tomb was empty and the body was missing, all that the Jewish leaders had to do then to show that Peter was talking a lot of hokum was to bring the rotting body and show it to the people and torture a few Christians until they quickly confessed that they'd made up this whole fantasy. No one did. The leaders had a troop of soldiers around the tomb in which the body lay so that his disciples couldn't creep in and steal the body and then announce, well, he's risen from the dead. They were a leaderless bunch. They were demoralized and broken-hearted. They had no gumption, no audacity to conceive a plan so straight away after his agonizing death to steal his body. For what purpose? What would they have done with it? Buried it somewhere else? You know, they wanted the body to embalm it. They'd taken spices, frankincense, and linen cloths to make sure that his body was respected. To have taken it away would have been to defile it. Mary got to the tomb and we read about that. She discovered it was open. The body was missing. She went on to a man there. He looked just like an ordinary bloke, we would say. He looked like a gardener. You know, you see the council gardeners, don't you? Doing the wonderful gardens that we have here. And pouring water in and doing some weeding. As real as that. She, she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. Do you know where he is? I'll get him, she said. I'll get him. The two men on the road to Emmaus, they were distraught. They were so heavy, they dragged their feet as they walked the five miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They weren't a pair of conspirators working out a plot now uh, to humiliate the killers of Jesus by announcing that he had risen and uh, that, that, that he was actually living somewhere in a, a village in, in Galilee. The thought never entered their minds. They would have been horrified if anyone had suggested it. They were earnest Jews, weren't they? All his disciples were. They lived under the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would have been no greater false witness ever made to the whole world than that he was risen and you spent your life promoting the lie of his resurrection. So I accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my God. I accept that unreservedly. It's the testimony then of ordinary, ordinary men and women to facts that they could substantiate because they were eyewitnesses like the people in the Swansea court tomorrow who will stand in a witness box and said we saw this and we heard that and they'll be quizzed but they'll be unyielding no this is exactly what we saw Paul tells us that 
many were still alive. Hundreds were still alive when he wrote one of his letters. Go and speak to them. They love to talk to you about the day that they met the risen Jesus Christ. You think for a moment of him, uh, of Jesus Christ, that he was a man of integrity and a man of truth and a man of innocence. He actually made the claim that he was the truth. How could his memory be enhanced and his reputation be preserved as the greatest teacher that this world has ever known? If, some, if he allowed some odious lie to be circulated, that he had risen from the dead, in some pathetic attempt to make him even greater, that we could make Jesus greater than he is by fabricating lies about him? And so there would have to be a tissue of lies, wouldn't there, which would just pull in uh, all these men. Uh, It would mean that uh, Peter hadn't seen him. Thomas hadn't fallen before him and said, my Lord and, and my God, that Mary Magdalene hadn't seen him in the garden and heard him speak to her, and Cleopas on the road to Emmaus and the 500 people there on the mountain in Galilee who went on talking about it for years afterwards, all of them, unyielding, prepared to die for for this. And it was all falsehoods. That his disciples hadn't seen him by a fire at the side of the lake of Galilee where he had prepared breakfast for them. And that Paul on the on the road to Damascus, hadn't seen him in all his glory and been blinded by a sight of it, that they had all told lies about him, the worst lies that this world has ever seen, so that uh, 2,000 years later, there's a hundred of us meeting here tonight, and many, many of us believe that Jesus Christ is alive. It makes no sense. It's, it isn't an understanding of, of human nature. 500 men don't behave like that. One fanatic, two fanatics would act in that way. But not many fishermen and housewives and a man who worked in a tax office and two brothers and a sister who cared for one another and lived in a place called Bethany and a Roman centurion. These people knew it was true and they took it everywhere. They took it to Jerusalem and spoke of forgiveness through how he had died and that he had risen as the proof that he had died for sinners. Through Judea and Galilee and then to Samaria. They told the Samaritans The Messiah has come. He's died for our sins. He's been raised from the dead. And out and out they went. Into Asia. And into Europe. They sacrificed home comforts. Peter didn't see his wife. Months at a time. For years he took this message of a risen Jesus to the province of Asia. He hit the road. And in places the anger of people at hearing what he had to say to them was so intense that they threw stones at him and flogged him, turned their dogs on him. For what purpose if Peter in his heart knew it was all a lie? Jesus had never appeared to him after his resurrection. Were they simpletons, these people? Were they country Yokels. Well, you read Peter's letters. Excellent Greek. And such wise and sensible and happy advice to people who now are Christians and are following the Lord Jesus and confess him as their Lord and Savior. Listen, he says, rid yourselves of all malice, 
and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love us brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because that's what you were called to. Karl Marx never said anything as wonderful as that. If they were, if they were telling lies, then they were overcoming the evil that had been done to their master, Jesus, with wickedness that they promoted. So here is Peter, and he says that he saw the risen Lord Jesus raised from the dead, that he had meals with him, that he watched him eat, clear his plate, drink a little to help the food down, go to the outside toilet and come back and sit with them in what is a mealtime atmosphere of buzzing conversation. People asking questions and interrupting and some humor and some teasing. That's what our meals are like, aren't they? They didn't all eat in stony silence and then glanced at him. They had fellowship and communion together as they ate. It was a social occasion. That is what the presence of the risen Jesus did. And so Peter took that message and he just, he couldn't stop speaking about it to other people. He did it, as I said to you, on the day of Pentecost, he preached. And then the next days, and they healed someone, and then he explained that it was by the name of this living person that this man who was a cripple was able to walk again. And the Leaders of the Sanhedrin came on to him and they said to him, we, uh, you must stop preaching now. You, you can't continue this message. This must cease. And Peter says, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's so tremendous. It's so life-changing. It is so enriching. This is the most indelible reality of our lives, that the death isn't the terminus, that death is not the king, that it is unavoidable, and yet there is the resurrection from the dead. And the message then of the whole Bible is that death is not ultimate reality, that God is more powerful than the grave. Death came when men sinned and rebelled and fell. No death before that. And then there are the signs that God gave to us to encourage us, to prepare us. Um, Enoch walked with God and then he was not. God took him. Moses is taken uh, to be with God. Uh, Elijah too. Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He shall stand on the latter day upon the earth, and though flesh destroy my body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see him with my eyes, not, not another person. Elijah raises a little boy from the dead. The psalmist says God wouldn't allow his holy one, his holy son, to be corrupted, to putrefy and stink. Death cannot boast to us. Ah, it's impossible. 
Once I've got them, there's no escape. It's physically impossible. Once the heart stops beating and the blood stops flowing around the body and the lungs stop taking in air, then everybody rots and the worms crawl in and the worms crawl out. That is the end. Finish. With God, all things are possible. Every cell in our bodies. Every drop of blood belongs to the Lord, redeemed by him. Every atom. Our dust is precious to God. You know what the Bible says? He, is the, he has these two natures. He is uh, as divine as God and he is as human as any of us except for sin. And these two natures are in one person. And in death... Uh, the body and the, and the spirit are, are torn apart. And Jesus says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus, as to his spirit, the Son of God, as to his spirit, is there with God again, back there with his Father. His body is here in the earth. But oh, Jesus in heaven, treasures and values. Jesus on earth is in his body and loves it and cares for it and sees that nothing touches it or defiles it in every way. And on the third day then, the body and the spirit are united again forever and ever. Today there is a man at the right hand of God, a man that we're going to see. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God in Jesus Christ. Jesus, risen from the dead, is the best attested fact in history. He told them many times, he said, Son of man must be betrayed and taken and crucified. On the third day he will rise again. It's a, it's a phrase, the third day, that occurs again and again. They couldn't comprehend. They couldn't appreciate what he was saying. They, they looked at it as human beings do. As they say, if you're dead, you stay dead. No one's come back. And that's how they thought. They thought it's, um, it's a parable. It's symbolic language. That's what they thought. Paul was once speaking to a king who started to feel dubious about the resurrection. And he simply asked him, does it seem an impossible thing to you that God should raise the dead? So, behind your doubts about the resurrection are doubts about the reality of the living God. The evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection is uh, conclusive, sepulchre, empty, grave clothes there, folded neatly there, he not there. It's the right grave, it's just uh, 48 hours after he was put in it. He hadn't merely swooned and then recovered from the coma and pushed aside the vast stone that had come down the ramp and he'd come out. And then he'd walked five miles to Emmaus, talking, as naturally, with Cleopas and his companion, and not showing any of the marks of the terrible scourging and the crucifixion and the spear thrust that he had known. Not a coma, not a, a temporary illness. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Now he exists in the power of an endless life. Thieves didn't steal the body for what purpose? He had nothing. He didn't have somewhere to lay his head. It wasn't that they buried him with all his gold. He had nothing at all. His enemies didn't want his body. His friends treasured it too much to remove it at all. Where was it? Who took it? Why was the sepulchre empty? Jesus was raised from the dead. 
He was seen by many, and we're told of ten separate occasions when he came to them. There were probably other appearances that are hinted at that we know nothing of, but ten is more than enough for us to be persuaded. There was no, there were no hallucinations. You know, uh, hallucinations is the apparent sight of some object which has got no reality out there. You remember a woman called me and asked me to come to her home in Barth uh, because she had seen a ghost. It was a council house and the ghost appeared by the refrigerator. And so uh, I went there. I said, uh, her daughter lived in the house. Had he seen it? She's seen it? No, no. No one else had seen it except her. But she felt the cat saw it because the cat looked at this general direction of where the refrigerator was. I was sceptical, and she was offended. It was a hallucination. It was there in her mind. It wasn't out there. It wasn't a tangible reality. You couldn't take a photograph of it. It didn't speak. It didn't introduce itself. When the risen Jesus appeared to Thomas, he said, Handle me. Touch me. Put your finger in the nail prints. Put your hand in, in my side. Don't, don't be doubting. I'm not a ghost. He was saying to Thomas. His appearances weren't hallucinations. Were they? After the, uh, after the crucifixion, there was no long period of uh, exaggerated wishful thinking that the twelve and Mary and the other women all went through longing to see Jesus rise. It wasn't like that. There was no cozy setting. They were not all in the upper room in, in darkness, a few candles, and then uh, somebody pointed out some shadows and said, look, there's Jesus, and they all swooned and said that was Jesus. It, it wasn't like that. It's a, a carnus, a, a bodily doctrine. Someone alive from the dead who walks and speaks and interrogates. Thomas doubted for a week. He said, The dead don't rise. And a week later, Jesus comes and makes himself known to him Touch me, handle me, feel my muscles. And he falls before him and says, my Lord and my God. There's a, a certain kind of person, I suppose, who is more uh, open to hysteria and hallucinations than others. I spoke to this lady and uh, said to her, she'd been reading books about ghosts. And reluctantly she told me she had. Jesus is in all sorts of places. He's in a garden. He's between the garden and the upper room. He's in the upper room. He walks for a long time, for hours, talking to people and sitting with them on the way to Emmaus. He's by the side of the lake in in the morning. He's near Bethany. He's in all those places and he's listening. And he's nodding and he's answering questions about the kingdom of God. And he's killing a fish and baking bread and he's cooking and he's eating. And there are the various psychological states of the people that that meet with him. There's Mary Magdalene, she's almost in despair. The other women were astonished and afraid. Uh, The two on the road to Emmaus were filled with perplexity and grief. And Peter was full of remorse because he denied him. And Thomas was incredulous, resurrected, pulled the other leg, he was saying. And the disciples were fishing. And they see the fire and the figure. And they smell fish being cooked. And someone they are so familiar with is there. Five hundred saw him. The grapevine worked very efficiently. And the people you and I know from the Gospels 
um, a woman whose son was demon-possessed and Jesus delivered him, a, a centurion, two sisters and a brother, a leper who was cleansed and was so grateful for what Jesus had, had done. They all go. They tell one another, he's going to meet us in Galilee. And they go there and they wait. And there have been cases in history where people have waited and waited and no one's turned up. But Jesus turns up. He's there and he walks with them and talks to them and he moves around them like the queen at a, a garden party in Buckingham Palace. And, uh, and he talks to them and he asks how they are and gives them little words of encouragement and smiles and takes his time with them. They never forgot it. They were always talking about it. Any opportunity, they would sit, sit down, they would say, and they would tell you about that day in their lives. He's not a spook. He breaks through those barriers. All the evidences, all the proofs. Jesus rose. Jesus lives. He lives today. Who once died? Why why was it important that he rose from the dead? Well, uh, it says a number of things, the resurrection. Resurrection says that uh, by rising from the dead, what he did for us on the cross was acceptable and pleasing to God. He made atonement for our sins. He took our judgment, our condemnation in himself. People said he was a criminal and a blasphemer and they, that he was worthy of such a death. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he raised him from the dead. By his resurrection, Jesus showed that the claim he made, I am the resurrection and the life, was absolutely true. He's the prince of life. He could raise himself from the dead. Think of it, uh, lying there in that sleep of death. And then he opens one eye, and he opens another eye, and he moves. And the stone has been removed. And he gets up, and he, he removes the napkin around his head, and he folds it, and the, the clothes that are binding him. And he gets up, and he walks out. And he walks into the world and he's reached Aberystwyth and every part of the world. Jesus says, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to raise it again. His resurrection declared him to be the Son of God with power. He spent three and thirty years in a state of humiliation. But now he has the same authority and power as God himself. He is the one who has pledged himself to be with us. To gather when we meet. To be with us on a Monday morning. To be on the school bus. To be in the tutorial group. To answer when we are put under pressure. Don't worry, I'll tell you what to say. Because he's risen we shall live also. We're not snuffed out. We're not annihilated. Knowing no existence, separate from all that is precious and loving to us. and Like you switch a light out or you blow a candle out and the flame goes. It's not going to be like that. Because he lives. We will live also. It shows his power over the prince of darkness over the God of this world. It's a victory parade. Principalities and powers would... All the evil that you see and the marks of it, you groan as you read the papers, you watch news on television. They say um, some of this will be harrowing. And so they are careful. What we don't see, how much more harrowing is that? The evil one, the God of this world, what he causes men to do. Jesus has conquered him. Jesus rises on the third day. He is being commended to us as a a worthy Lord. 
Don't, don't you want such a Lord? Who are you serving? Who are you giving your life to please? Who is it? Is it some sporting star? Some film star? Some politician? Do you have a rich variety of choices that you're spoiled for? To say, I'm living for him? This great teacher, the Sermon on the Mount. This loving, holy, kind, gentle, good man. This one who on the third day rose from the dead. You choose him. You make him your Lord. You fall before him. You serve him. Again, in his resurrection appearances, what I love most of all about them is his familiarity with us. How close he comes to us then. There's an interview he has with Peter. Peter's denied him three times, and so Jesus now to settle him and recommission him, asks him three times, do you love me, Peter? you love me more than these? Do you really love me, Peter? Peter says, Lord, you, you know everything about me. You know that I love you. That, that's how he's dealing with us tonight. He's brought us here, and then he's here, and he's challenging and overcoming our objections and answering our questions and speaking to us in these ways. And then on the road to Emmaus, remember how carefully he walked with just utterly unknown, anonymous people. We know nothing about Cleopas except that he'd been a disciple and now he was walking along this road home despairing of their leaders, despairing of religion. And uh, Lord Jesus opens up the scriptures to them. He speaks about the Bible to them. That is how I would be your best friend. By explaining to you the Bible. And then he did more than that. He opened their understanding. What I can't do. But what he, the risen Christ, still does. He opens our understanding. And, and we see it and we believe what he says to us. You've been told tonight then to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's why God brought you here and that's why he gave me this message as we're going through this particular epistle of Paul. Your mother might have said to you, all right, go along to the Baptist church, but don't get converted. What's happened is that you've got converted. It happened to my granddaughter-in-law. Her name is Sybil. And she had told her boyfriend, Rodri, that she would come to the Aberystwyth Conference. And her mother said, all right, yes, you must go. You've told him you're going. You must go, but don't get converted. And the first weekend on a Saturday and Sunday when I spoke at Bethel, what happened? Sybil was converted. Sybil, a scientist, became a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. She knew he was alive. And scores of you, scores of you know that you serve a living Savior. Do you think that hallucinations and lies are so potent that they can make mum and dad and grandpa and grandma and uh, the people that are your friends in this congregation, that they could make them the well-rounded and happy and caring and patient and loving people that they are. Do you think lies and fantasies could do that? Here were 12 men who were given a sense of purpose. Life was worth living. 
They had a mission in life. They had a, an authority. They had a dignity. They had a confidence. They had a joy. They had a quiet power about them. When they spoke, then you were gripped with what they said. It was a transformation in depth, and it took some time. It, it took the 40 days of Jesus being alive for them to be persuaded. It took the Holy Spirit to come into their lives to persuade them. Because some, even on the Mount of Ascension, were still doubting. Can it be that he died and rose again? And here they are then. And you see them in the book of Acts. You read about them and they're just super guys. They're caring and strong and sensible. And Jesus Christ did it for them. And Jesus Christ has done it for the people you know who are Christians. Who tell you, you can become a Christian too. You know, you've tried other things. You've tried money. You've tried relationships. You've tried alcohol and drugs. And you've tried health. And uh, you've nodded sagely. When someone has said to you, if you've got your health, you've got everything. Yes, yes, that's true, that's so true. But you've had your health, and you've lived a long life, and you haven't got everything. There's an emptiness. There's a lack of purpose, and death every day is coming nearer and nearer, isn't it? My talking about it won't bring it any nearer to you. And you're not a happy person. And you don't have peace in your heart. And you're afraid of dying. But these followers of Jesus Christ, they are different, aren't they? The change in Saul of Tarsus from being an angry, bitter, resentful, hateful, cruel man to being the sort of man he became after he met with the living Jesus Christ. It's an enormous contrast. That's what Jesus did and that's what he does today. That's why you listen when your Christian friends say to you, we believe Jesus is alive. I've, I've had some experience of Jesus in my life. I've known him now for some years. He's been a wonderful and faithful Lord and Savior to me. The great word of grace and encouragement in this verse is in the words, descended from David. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. You know what David did. Literally, it's the seed of David. And you know what the seed of David did. It impregnated a married woman, Bathsheba. And he had her husband killed. And she was added to the number of wives that he had taken. He was a great man and he was a weakling. Like all of us Christians are. We don't preach ourselves, but we want to preach this man who, who changes us. Who has mercy on us. Jesus was descended from David. And you would think Jesus would never acknowledge that. He wouldn't say a word about it. Because he was rather ashamed that David was one of his ancestors. You may be very interested in your ancestors and go to the National Library and find out who your great-great-grandfather was. You might find he was rather an unsavory character, but not as unsavory as David. But here Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, 
There's hope for you then, isn't there? That God isn't ashamed to say that his son was descended by a human line from David. The devil will say to you, you're not good enough. I will say that all of us here are really very proper and bourgeois and moral people. You don't know us. We're, we're sinners. Grace is the only thing that is. The mercy of God is the only thing that's. The forgiveness of God is the only thing that's made us the people we are tonight. I'm a sinner speaking to sinners about the Savior of sinners. And that is Jesus Christ, the living, risen Lord. I'm saying to you, you need him. You must have him. He's here tonight. He's brought you here in his mercy and in his love to explain that death is powerless in comparison to him. He's bigger, stronger. He's omnipotence. And he is grace. And uh, you must take him. It's a movement of your heart as the Holy Spirit has used my words. And used the hymns we've sung and will sing. And the testimony of Elizabeth soon. And all these things to say, yeah, I'm going to join them too. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm going to serve him. He's going to be my Lord. And it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that helps you to do that. You go to him. You, you, you pray to him. And you ask him. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead according to our gospel. Thank you for a living Savior. Thank you, Lord, for being present tonight with us as you've been present with many of us for a long, long time. And we pray, loving God, that uh, the rest of this service will be blessed in another way and we'll be helped to serve you all our days and give glory and honor to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.